Welcome to The Human Advantage, a podcast from the Centre for Army Leadership, which explores the more personal and tactical applications of leadership. In each episode, we meet someone who has experienced the highs and lows of leading, in situations ranging from major combat operations to challenges in barracks. We explore what they've learned about leadership to help our junior leaders prepare for success on operations today and in the future. I'm your host, Ash Bardwaj, a journalist and broadcaster and a British Army Reserve Captain with the Rifles. In this episode, we meet someone who knows what the full responsibility of leadership feels like. If one needs a reference point for that very stereotypical cinematic leadership moment where everything slows down and everyone's looking at you to say what next, then that was it for me. And who recognises that leadership doesn't always come from the top. The moment was broken by Private Highland, 18 years old, who's quite simply stepped forward and said, I'll go point soldier. The leadership displayed by him at that moment in time, I think, changed the momentum for the entire rest of the tour. Lieutenant Colonel Dean Canham OBE, commissioned in the year 2000, in the 1st Battalion, the Worcestershire and Sherwood Foresters Regiment, on their residential tour of Northern Ireland. He deployed to Sierra Leone on Op Silkman and to Afghanistan on Op Herrick 1 as a reconnaissance platoon commander, then to Helmand Province on Op Herrick 6 as the Battle Group Operations Officer. He commanded a Grenadier Company of 2nd Battalion, the Mersin Regiment, on Herrick 15, and in the Falklands, and he led the two Mersin contingent at the 2012 Olympic Games. He took command of one Mersin in September 2020 and led the battle group in Estonia on Op Kabrit 8 in 2021. Colonel Dean has worked at the Army Personnel Centre, Army Headquarters and Permanent Joint Headquarters, where he was awarded an OBE for his work supporting operations in South Sudan and Somalia. He is instructed at the Infantry Training Centre Catrick, Platoon Commanders Division Brecon and on the Intermediate Staff Course Trivenham. He's now heading up the Centre for Army Leadership. This conversation with Colonel Dean is a raw and honest insight into the realities of leadership and dealing with the consequences of your decisions. Just a bit of a content warning. We talk about the deaths of soldiers on operations, improvised explosive devices and dealing with the trauma of those tragedies. If these topics are difficult for you to hear about, you may want to skip this one. We have also signposted some resources that can help at the end of the episode, and there will be links in the show notes. The conversation starts when then-Captain Dean Cannon was deployed to the northern reaches of Afghanistan on Herrick 1, and a long way from where the main body of British troops were working. It was the best grounding in small team cohesion that I think anyone could ever have had. As you said, I was commanding the reconnaissance platoon. The reconnaissance platoon got split into five groupings, six soldiers with an officer in each, then spread across the entirety of northwest Afghanistan. And we were the, the furthest away from the nearest British base in Mazar Sharif. We were out in a town called Maimana, living in the basement of an old bank with six Finnish soldiers and six Danish soldiers. We were there for six months, the six of us, sharing a room if we were in the house, sharing the two 
vehicles we were driving around in, sharing the two Arctic tents, when we were out on the ground, as far as an absolute immersion in the lives of five other soldiers, then that was it. Did that create any difficulties for you with this familiarity, command relationship? There was absolutely a moment, and I think it was probably about halfway through the tour, probably around Christmas, when you could see that actually the burden of being away that long, being that isolated and having to live on top of each other and work on top of each other the entire time just started to grate people slightly. We weren't filtering people out on an individual basis for leave. We were all going together at the same time. The colour sergeant that was with me in the team, we sat down and had a, a chat about it and then got the other guys in as well. And we just talked about it. And funnily enough, we all realised that we were probably all getting on each other's nerves a little bit and we needed to with just give each other a bit more space. But actually just having that conversation entirely clear the air and even though I was a captain and the Lance Corporals in the team, we had a, a very open and honest conversation and the following three months went by without incident. And having your colour sergeant with you to help you bridge that gap, that helped you frame that or understand it a bit more or did it just make the conversations itself easier? Both he and I realised that we were contributing, as we all were, to elements of the tension. His view was very much focused on making sure that we could sustain ourselves for the six months, that my enthusiasm to continually keep pushing on, going further, whilst he was having to make sure the vehicles were going to keep working and that we had enough rations, ammunition, etc., to see us through whatever it was I was doing. Whilst that became a bit of a tension, it was both of us doing our jobs exactly as we should be doing and actually getting the best out of the team and the capability that we had. The aspect of mission command was fascinating and it becomes more fascinating the more and more I look, look back on it. We were almost entirely isolated with regards any reinforcements, resupply, casualty evacuation, vehicle recovery, it was all on us. There was a notional opportunity for us to be evacuated if we were injured, but that was by German helicopters from a very long way away, and it was only during daylight. If the plane didn't land when it came every two weeks to resupply us, then it was another two weeks before it came back. That element of trust that was given to us the element of mission command at that stage, it was very much a case of, we don't really know what's out there, just go and have a look. So you weren't popping back into company headquarters once a week to give an update, you were just out there on your own for the whole time? Absolutely that, and I saw my boss at the time once as we transited back through to go on R&R. Once in six months? In the six months. So that early mission command must have helped develop your confidence in yourself as as an officer. Uh, you then went on to instruct on the platoon commander's division in Brecon and then returned to battalion as an ops officer for Herrick 6. So you'd been in seven years as a captain by that point. What was that experience like for you? Because suddenly you're planning operations as part of a battle group. So having looked back on it through a leadership lens, I realised that there was a huge amount of 
leadership that I was doing without realising it because as an ops officer, you didn't necessarily expect to, or you didn't see yourself in a leadership role. As in you didn't have lots of other soldiers under your direct command? Exactly that. But I've realised subsequently that the leading of the very small planning teams for what were very significant battle group level operations and the leadership required out in the tactical headquarters when we were going forward in what were some very kinetic times, actually I was leading, perhaps leading myself predominantly through some very difficult decisions and some very difficult moments. The brutal consequences of decisions and plans I was making really hits home. It hit home at the time. The fact that I had a huge amount of combat power, which was reacting to things which I was planning and delivering orders for, and then seeing the consequences of that being applied on enemy forces, on our forces, on the civilian population, makes the sense of responsibility bear down on you quite heavily. There were a couple of incidents which I was directly involved in, which reinforced that point. On the, the first night after a significant battle group operation to, to take an objective, there were sporadic contacts still taking place across the whole area that we were operating in. And one of the companies required an ammunition resupply. And the nature of the circumstances meant it was quite a short distance, but it was a single vehicle that had to move, so not ideal. They came up on the radio net and asked me whether they could move with their headlights on so they could move faster. Looking at the picture of where the contacts were happening at that point in time across the AO, which they were going to have to pass pretty close to, I said to them that, no, they couldn't. They should move a bit more slowly, more tactically on night vision goggles. About 10 minutes later, that ammunition resupply was becoming more and more pertinent. But we got a report over the net that that vehicle had crashed into a ditch and that the two people in the cab in the front were trapped upside down in the water. And that report had come from a soldier who had been in the back and who had managed to get out, who had made some initial attempts to rescue them, and then with no weapon, no helmet and body armour, because he'd taken them off to get into the water, had moved on his own in the dark back to the company to find help. But the two soldiers in that vehicle very sadly drowned. And about an hour later, the doctor brought their bodies to the area that the battalion's tactical headquarters was in and where I was. I found myself in a situation where myself and the regimental sergeant major were carrying their bodies onto the helicopter. And if anyone needs a demonstration of how the decisions you make can have an impact, then that was it. The decision I made, which I've reflected on a lot, I would make again. It was the right decision based on the information we had at the time. But that doesn't stop you thinking about whether or not you could have done it differently, how you would 
react if you had to make those decisions again and whether you'd choose a different course of action. Um, just a week later, and I think this probably develops a discussion about character and resilience when you are in leadership positions. In the same area, we had a Danish squadron under command. They were under a fairly significant attack from the Taliban at that point in time. It was night time again. Chaos was ensuing as it does in these situations. And another company in the battle group offered up the opportunity to provide some fire support for the Danish patrol base that was under attack. I was effectively the link between the two subunits. And there was discussions going on about where they thought and what they where they thought they could offer support. As it turned out, subsequently, both those subunits were not entirely clear what the situation was and where all their people were. That fire support took place. That fire support actually became a fratricide incident, friendly fire incident, and two Danish soldiers were killed in that incident. And this was six days after we'd had the two British soldiers drown. And again, I don't remember at the time questioning myself. I remember thinking about it, checking back over the radio logs, the notes, all of the information, and being entirely confident that everyone did what they thought was right at the time, based on the information they had. And that given that same information, people would make the same decisions again. The fact that people had made what turned out to be mistakes still makes you reflect pretty hard on your part in that. But as far as resilience in character and confidence is concerned, I pressed on and I look back at it and I think I may be surprised that I did just press on and continue with the rest of the tour and there were other incidents going forward. But I'm reassured by that fact as well. And I think if there's a lesson for other people who might find themselves in those situations, it's acknowledging that in very difficult situations, sometimes you have to make very difficult decisions and you do that based on the information you have at the time and you take responsibility for it as a leader. And if it turns out that that decision leads to tragic consequences, then that is entirely that, it's, it's tragic. But that is also part of the job and that's why we go through as much leadership training as we do. What things did you draw upon to get through it? And did the mentorship of those around you help you through that? Or was it just everyone was so busy you just had to continue on and deal with it yourself? I think it was very much the latter, actually. And I don't look back and think that I needed or expected any guidance, intervention, support from people at the time. We were so busy, there was so much going on that we we all just pushed on and course other people are all having their own moments in their own battles literally that would be challenging them but there was very little that we spoke about or did at the time to look back on it we did all that subsequently when we got back and I can look back now and actually realize that we're still doing it I still talk to the people I was there with 
at the time. Some of them are my very best friends. And I talked to private soldiers who were there at the other ends of these incidents who are now senior NCOs and that process of reflecting on it, thinking about it, carries on. It's also one of the beauties of the regimental system that I still serve with these same individuals now, and that makes a real difference. And do you think there's a sort of axis of confidence and then growing humility as you work through the ranks and spend more time in the army and have personal experiences that change your perspectives that alters the way you lead over time? I think the experiences I've had, I would class myself as extremely lucky because it enables me to have perspective. And I think that that is really useful when helping younger officers and soldiers now to think about the situations they're in, how they deal with them, how they could do so better. Because if you have had experiences that are as demanding, as impactful, potentially as life-changing as they have been for many people who have been on those types of operations that I have, then you can put things in perspective. And that just helps everyone focus on what's important, not get overly excited about the things which aren't important, and take that moment to really think about how to lead through those really difficult times. You had to return to Afghanistan four or five years later on Herrick 15 as the officer commanding a Grenadier Company, 2nd Battalion Mercian Regiment. You now had kids, you had a family, and yet you had to go back into a kinetic tour, and it was very busy from the outset for you. It was. We inherited an area with an abnormally high number of serious incidents and contacts, which was unusual in the context of the theatre at that point. In the first three months, having checked back on my, my diary, we conducted 381 multiple patrols and were in contact on 106 of them. So somewhere between a third and half of your patrols, you were engaged in firefights? We were, and we were taking an abnormal number of casualties compared to the rest of the brigade at that point in time, and we were expending the vast majority of the brigade's ammunition that was being fired at the time, and that was unusual. So in the brigade, there would have been about 14 companies on the ground. And I think you were expending, in a company, 95% of the brigade's ammunition. Through those first three months. So one fourteenth of the brigade was expending 95% of the ammunition. That gives you an idea of how unusually kinetic and busy it was for you guys. It was also worth noting that it was next to no engagement with the local population whatsoever. Very early in the tour, it was identified to us that the person we needed to speak to was in a particular village not very far away from where our patrol bases were at all. We set off to go to try to speak to him, for me to go and speak to him. On that first notable patrol to go and seek engagement with the local Muller, Private Hemming knelt on an improvised explosive device. 
which pretty much cut him in half. And this was in our first week. He lost both of his legs and part of his hand and died on the American helicopter that came to pick him up. But only for about 10 minutes and some very brutal battlefield medical assistance means that he's back alive and still very much so today. But the, the knock of confidence and morale that had on me and on the rest of the company was palpable. We did some slightly lower level patrolling over the next few days before then. Six days later, stepping out with effectively the same mission from a slightly different geographical angle and on the route in to the same village, Private Goodman, a very good friend of Private Hemming, stepped on another improvised explosive device, losing both his legs and part of his hand. And if one needs a reference point for that very stereotypical cinematic leadership moment where everything slows down and everyone's looking at you to say what next, then that was it for me. As the helicopter took off with Private Goodman on it, who also survived, I had a absolute sense of the world bearing down on my shoulders, of everyone looking at me thinking, what are we going to do now? And of an absolute magnetic pull for us to turn around and go back into the patrol base. And I could absolutely sense that that's what everyone wanted to do and that that's what I wanted to do. But what I also knew almost instantly that that was not the right thing to do, that if we were going to dictate the terms on which we were going to operate for the rest of the tour, if we were going to dominate the ground, if we were going to change the situation that we were in, then turning around and going back into camp at that point would have prevented us from doing so. You know, I think experience and training and thinking made me knowing that was the right thing to do, that came quite easily. And despite the fact that I was, I think, as I recall, pretending to adjust my kit and look at the radio and stuff to give myself just a, a moment to think about it, I knew what the right answer was almost immediately. And I think that's often the case. But actually implementing it is the difficult bit. Looking at the small command group, which I very quickly pulled together, and saying to them, we're going forward, we're pressing on, we're continuing with the patrol, was one of the most difficult things I've had to do. Because you're looking at the fear in their eyes, you're suppressing your own personal fear that you're going forward as well into those sorts of environments. It was probably the, as I said, most difficult leadership moment. The moment was broken by Private Highland, 18 years old, who was listening to this briefing happening, who's quite simply stepped forward and said, I'll go point soldier. The leadership displayed by him at that moment in time, I think, changed the momentum for the entire rest of the tour. 
I think I can look back and see that the turning point for that was Private Highland agreeing that we were going to go forward on that patrol and try and speak to people despite what had just happened. I imagine after an incident like that where you've had two soldiers in a short space of time seriously injured, that there must be quite high emotion within an infantry company that's been trained for combat and a desire to seek some, I guess, revenge for that. How did you manage that as the company commander and ensure that you're still meeting your mission? It became clear to us that once we'd moved off on that same patrol, actually, completed the rest of the patrol, made the very first small inroads into engagement with the locals and got back into the patrol base that the the surveillance balloon that we had meant that we'd, we could watch the area where Private Goodman had been hit by the ID. And as it turns out, there were individuals with weapons scouring over that area. And very obviously, they were exploiting that which was left behind. Now, we had the, the means, the weapons in range to engage those individuals. And there was a very strong sense amongst some of the people in the operations room at the time that we should do so. Um, Probably an initial sentiment which I shared. But it was also very clear to me that that wasn't the right thing to do, predominantly because it was, there were still other locals, innocent civilians in and around that area. And it was contrary to the rules of engagement. But the sense of wanting to hit back was very palpable. Actually having to say to people, no, we are not going to, again, is a difficult moment. But subsequently, once people had had a bit of time to decompress, calm down, come back, once I'd had a chat with the the senior NCOs and the corporals in the company about why we weren't doing that. They came back to me subsequently, some of them, and said, yeah, you're right. You were right, of course. But again, it's a a good demonstration of where leadership, sometimes the most difficult decisions aren't in the heat of the moment. Actually, some of them, you might have a bit more time to be considered about it. It doesn't necessarily make them any easier. And the right decisions are often the unpopular ones in the moment. There must have been a moment where you really needed the senior NCOs in the company to explain to the junior NCOs and soldiers why you weren't hitting back. Absolutely, because not everyone is privy to those conversations and inevitably the message might get lost as it travels down the chain of command as to why we wouldn't hit back in that example. But having sensible, experienced senior NCOs, it can bridge that gap down to the the lowest level to all of their teams dispersed across the area we were operating in as well. Makes all the difference. You've had a couple of those incidents there where you've had to do the right thing even if it's difficult. Were there any other examples on the tour where you had to do that? Alongside the two soldiers that we'd had struck by improvised explosive devices 
we'd had five soldiers shot in those first three months and we suspected that at least two maybe three of them had been shot by the same individual from the same area and this particular area was quite a complex bit of terrain it was protecting a, a key road junction which we needed to have a bit more control over and so we conceived a counter sniper ambush with our own snipers and were reinforced by another couple of pairs of snipers from the battle group to do so but of course this Taliban sniper was taking his shots at us he wasn't routinely just hanging around waiting to be countered and so another very difficult decision and discussion to be had about how we draw him out and who the tethered goats are going to be to be able to enact the the ambush. So this is sending out your own soldiers in order to get him to reveal himself by shooting at those soldiers? Exactly that. And I was having a think about it beforehand and thinking that's a very difficult conversation to have to have with one of the multiple commanders before, again, actually very quickly realising what the right answer was and there was no conversation about me having to say to someone, I need you to go out and do that. The obvious answer was, we're going out to do this. And that makes that decision and that briefing and that plan significantly easier to implement. So you led the multiple that went out to draw the fire? I went out in the multiple that was there to draw the fire. That sees off a lot of the issues that you might otherwise have with that sort of decision. It still doesn't make it personally easy, but we went out on that patrol. There were two shots fired on that operation. The first one, which was the Taliban sniper firing a single round towards us and a sickening pause whilst we waited to see if it had hit anyone, which it hadn't, and then very quickly followed by a second shot fired by one of our snipers just as the Taliban sniper moved into a second position to take a, a subsequent shot and our sniper killed him, um, which made it a, a very successful operation. There was certainly no celebratory mood, but there was very much a sense of satisfaction and again, justification for a difficult leadership decision made. There's so much we could talk about within your leadership experience. I'd love to dig into more of these on another occasion. Well, you're now the head of leadership at the Centre for Army Leadership. So it's your job to oversee the development of doctrine and training for leadership at all levels, from Lance Corporal all the way through to the general staff. When I look back on your time as a leader and the stories that you've shared with us today, the thing that really echoes through are the values and standards. And in those difficult decision moments, you drew upon them about trying to do the right thing. Do you think that's a good reflection of how you think about leadership? Absolutely. And in my very short time here at the Centre for Army Leadership so far, what's become absolutely apparent is that there is still so much work to do. There is, quite rightly, an assumption that everyone in the army is good at leadership and that all the theory's been done and once you've gone through your training, that's it. Neither of which is, is true. There is a huge amount of work to be done to make people better, noting that the army is very good at leadership. 
and there is this huge amount of work to be done on developing theories and, and doctrine to reflect a, a modern context as well. The character of a leader, what a leader is, is the fundamental building block of leadership and leadership development. And I think founding any leadership development in the values and standards and behaviours approaches will continue to be the basis of everything going forward. Leadership will become, must become, the foundation for our organisational cultural change and will do going forward. And so I would anticipate the Centre for Army Leadership being more and more central to making everyone in the Army, all ranks, better leaders throughout their career. I heard a phrase that I think you've used, which is do what you know to be right, stop what you know to be wrong. And that seems to summarise the way you've approached leadership. And it seems to be a good foundation. That phrase will be familiar to soldiers who have worked for me in uh, when I was an OC and as a CO. There, there is a lot that can be read into the values, standards, behaviours, doctrine and guidance but if you want to sum all of it up just into two short sentences then do what you know to be right stop what you know to be wrong and if you use that as a guiding principle for pretty much any difficult leadership situation it will give you the right answer well, thank you very much for sharing those stories and your insights and leadership colonel dean i'd like to finish with a couple of quick fire questions if you don't mind what is your perfect way to spend a sunday my perfect Sunday would be in the garden on a sunny day, pottering around, probably with some music on and probably with some drinks on ice somewhere as well. What would be the music and drinks? Uh, I would, I'd imagine, default to something like Queen as the music and there would probably be ideally a decent bottle of red wine or a few beers. Very good. Um, what films, books, podcasts or people have taught you the most about leadership? I think in the context of this podcast, the book I would refer back to would be Richard Holmes's Acts of War. I read it twice, once just before deploying on the first tour to Afghanistan and then 10 years later after three tours of Afghanistan. And it really recognises that... It is soldiers who will make the difference in war. And it talks about the preeminence of the moral component. If, as a young leader, you're looking for a really good steer on how soldiers are going to act under pressure, then that's a good start point. And if you could offer one piece of advice about leadership to Second Lieutenant Cannon, what would it be? It would be back yourself. Probably what you're thinking is the right answer and get to that point quicker than I did. And probably on advice from other people, don't forget to make sure your face is showing people what you're thinking as well along the way. Colonel Dean Cannon, thank you very much for talking to us. Absolute pleasure. I found Colonel Dean's honesty about his experiences to be both profound and moving. 
in particular his raw discussion about the real-world impact of command decisions. Whilst decision-making in conflict is complex, Colonel Dean's training had prepared him for critical moments, and the experience of senior non-commissioned officers and warrant officers helped to ensure that his orders and their justifications were understood. He acknowledged the reality of emotions in conflict, and that decision-making in that environment is messy, but that the Army's values, standards and behaviours are powerful tools to turn to when decisions are difficult. He sums them up with the phrase, do what you know to be right, stop what you know to be wrong. Colonel Dean also drew a distinction between command and leadership. Whilst command is something that comes with a job, leadership is much more about behaviour and mindset, and anyone can lead at any time. If you are a soldier or family member who has been affected by any of the topics in this episode, visit the Army's Ask for Help page. Just search for British Army Ask for Help on Google, and it should be one of the first search results. The link to that page will also be in this episode's show notes. This was an episode of The Human Advantage, presented by me, Ash Bardwaj of Digital Dandy, and co-produced by Catherine Carr from Feast Collective on behalf of the Centre for Army Leadership. What you hear on each episode are the views of the participants and do not represent the position of the Centre for Army Leadership, the British Army or the United Kingdom Government. Please rate and subscribe to The Human Advantage on your podcast app, where you can find more episodes. If you enjoyed the episode, do send it to any friends and colleagues that you think might appreciate it, and maybe even share it on social media. For more information about developing leadership, just search online for the Centre for Army Leadership. Thanks for listening.